0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Alias to another episode of The Banyan and take it away.
1: This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the handle The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shattar, and this is the Beirut Banyan. First of all, a round of applause to this gentleman, Samir Beyham. An audio expert and a magician. I don't know how he does all of this, but he's been by my side since February. And now we're going to Hamdoun in a few weeks as well. We'll be traveling Lebanon, taking the podcast live different places. Tonight's unique for me because it's not politics. Is it not? Not the way I understand the usual discussions that take place day in, day out. This is a relief because you're a talented writer. You have a musical way of writing. It's almost lyrical when I read your sentences in French or English. Thankfully, Google Translate does a good job. So I enjoy your pieces, and I've been reading you for some time. And the idea for this episode started in my mind about maybe seven months ago, eight months ago. We were together in Union Marks watching a concert. An obscure concert in an obscure industrial hall. But I think we were drawn together in a way. We started talking about the mess that we live in, and then I realized it's time I have you on the podcast. Thanks to William and Neve, I don't know if they're here still. Maybe William left already. Outside. He's outside. William told me, "You can only do episodes in alias if you bring Camille Amun to <laughs> alias." So you're here. And it's an honor to have you here. This is not a very structured episode. I wanted to focus on your love for the city, maybe your writing technique. I think of you less in academic circles, even though you're affiliated now in an academic institution. I think of you as a gifted storyteller. And it's funny because what you write and the way you write and the way you walk through Beirut in your writing is what I did for 15 years. I walked and talked across Beirut. I kept the tour simple, it was called Walk Beirut. No confusion. And then I realized that's what you're doing too, but you're doing it your way. So I'll get into my way as we discuss. Let's start though with your writing technique. Before we get into the articles, Really, the way you write in this creative nonfiction element you have, why do you use that technique? Why do you lean on first-person narrative, which is not easy to do, in particular, nonfiction? But you use it, and you use it well. Why you use that technique? And maybe, as we talk, why you focus on certain sites and not others? Because sometimes they're typical, sometimes they're not. So let's begin with the writing technique.
2: The writing technique, yes. It's important because it gives the shape to the text that is produced. Um, I have this obsession of uh, transforming the street or the, the urban sentence into a literary sentence. Uh, I've tried to do it in Dubai, which was much more difficult than in Beirut because the sentences are not easily readable. And when I came back to Beirut in 2018 uh, and when What happened in 2019 happened with the uprising or revolution. We can argue on how we can call it. Uh, My publisher called me and asked me if I could write something on what was happening in Beirut. And I chose specifically to stroll one street, this street, Uh, and use the psychogeography technique of the situationist i'm not going to bore you with uh, the, the def- def- with definitions but i'm going to tell you how it tra- translates when i'm walking and transforming my walk into a text what happens is that i walk a street and i listen or read every single text that is on this street it can be a sign it can be uh, an eavesdropped conversation. It can be uh, advertisement. It can be graffitis and tags. Uh, it can be a conversation I have with someone I bump into on the street, or it can be a conversation I am having with the person I'm walking with, because the conversation I'm having with the person I'm walking v- with, in my understanding, is part of the text of the street because it was generated from the streets. If I was having this conversation with the same person somewhere else, the conversation would have been different, even if we're talking about the same things. So everything that is generated from the street is transformed into text. There is also something else I use is emotions, my personal emotions. Uh, when I walk on a street, I can feel excited, I can feel stressed, I can feel comfortable or, dis- or feel some discomfort. Sometimes I can-, I can feel fear, depending on the surrounding, the environment, the people, the lighting, the, the situation. And all these emotions are also part of the scientific uh, description of a street according to the situationists and, the- and psychogeography. All of this creates what you call the non-fiction narrative. Which is not always non-fiction, sometimes it is fiction, Mm. but it is fiction with a purpose that needs to describe a reality. So you're leaning on
1: narrative more than actual facts. Is that a safe way of
2: really generalizing your work? I use facts to nourish my narrative. And the ultimate goal is a narrative, is a text with some aesthetics, as you said, musicality, uh, yeah. uh, flow. Uh, the, 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 if, if, if I was not writing something I would like aesthetically, I would not write. I don't write to, to, as a journalist, to describe a situation. But the situation produces a text that if I like it, I... I write it or I write it in a way I like.
1: So we'll get into certain sites and maybe why you prefer certain places versus others. But with your permission, I want to go down this road of psychogeography. So what exactly does that mean? And even there's a piece you wrote, not resilience subsidence. This is early 2022. You actually refer to that phrase as something, it's, it's almost like it's your writing technique and it's yeah. in the piece itself. So let's go down that road. What exactly does that mean?
2: Well, psychogeography evolved over time a lot. It was, it was, the, the term was coined by uh, a philo- French philosopher, Guy Debord. Mm. Uh, for him, psychogeography or how he envisaged psychogeography was like a, 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 a human science, a humanity uh, that would describe how the geographical space, the urban geographical space, transform people's behaviors and emotions. So he wanted to study that in a scientific way. Mm. This did not work. uh, And many years later, in the 90s, some British writers started using psychogeography as a writing device, uh, walking in order to write. So that was a device used? Yes, exactly. So literally embracing
1: all the senses and then jotting down how you feel.
2: Exactly. the,
1: The reason I'm going down this road, I always thought this was an unfavorable way of writing, in other words, reflexivity, or the personal narrative. I always was trained to do the opposite, meaning step away from it. But you're jumping straight in.
2: Yes. So that's a tool already established before.
1: And what's the what's his name? The French philosopher?
2: Guy Debord. But for mm-hmm. Guy Debord, it was not a literary device. The the writer who who made it a literary device and is a British writer called Ian called, uh, Sinclair. Okay. And what he did, he walked in London, the M25, which is the ring of London. Yeah. He walked the whole ring, which is a long highway and difficult to, to, uh, to walk. He walked it and he wrote his walk, describing everything he saw, parkings, pubs, uh, commercial centers, malls, uh, forests, um, uh, industrial sites, etc. And he, he, he digressed. Mm. So every, every, every single ordinary object... Is a, is a pretext for an extraordinary digression. And also he used his writing and he, he really positioned psychogeography as such to context, contest the ultra liberal policies of Margaret Thatcher at the time. I see. So what I did, I did the same thing uh, walking this street, the same literary technique, but also I used the political aspect that Jan Sinclair uh, used to contest the corruption of our political class.
1: So the corruption and addressing that almost through urban planning, that's where it becomes political in your writing. Exactly. Because I noticed that even in this article, not resilient subsidence, you even talk about abuse,
2: but it's not physical abuse, it's corruptive abuse. It can be physical abuse. It can be physical abuse. The 4th of August was physical abuse. And there are other many ways physical abuse took place also on the places, on the squares, during the demonstration. Physical abuse, uh, if we go back in history, civil war was a physical abuse. Because I, I always say that wars are, are, are waged by people who wage it against people who do not wage it. So I thought, the, of,
1: the, I thought of the word abuse. And this is, again, the great thing about your work is that it's, there's a bit of imagination. And you can kind of take what you want from it. I thought of extortion more than anything. Is that also at least part of that word abuse? Definitely.
2: Financial extortion. Yes. Abuse, uh, political abuse, freedom of expression, uh, uh, all these. Yes, uh, definitely. And if I talk about abuse, it's because I talk about resilience. Hmm. And resilience, a a person who is resilient is a person who has uh, went out of their trauma and is starting to reconstruct themselves. So they are not abused anymore. And that's why they can start their resilience work. We are, as as a Lebanese people, we are still under the grip of our abusers. As long as the abusers are in power and are abusing us, we cannot start our work of resilience.
1: In the piece, you even define substance. Subsidence, yes. Subsidence, yes. yes. So I'm going to actually use your words here. A geological term, the action of dropping below ground level, collapse.
2: Yeah.
1: That does not resonate in all your articles, but it is heavily emphasized here. And this is early last year. So I'd like now, with this article in mind, to really walk Beirut with you without being on the street without any photos, without anything to lean on, I want to do it the way a writer would explain their journey. All of these articles go from the easternmost sector of the city, so Hamoud, and just beyond the city's limits, to Sarai, to Antari, Antari Hill. Yeah. So just beneath the Sarai. That's a particular part of Beirut. And it's actually quite interesting because that zigzag... From British Hammoud to the Sarai, I was thinking about it today. It's a mirror reflection of the way I ended up doing my tour over time. What I tried to do was the impossible. Ras Beirut to British Hamoud, And that was a seven-hour tour. It was hard on the feet. I was very thin. I was actually very thin. <laughs> now I have a scooter and I sit and I talk. I used to walk every day. So that kind of narration was exhausting. But I thought you had to do the whole city. Turns out you don't. You can actually do parts of the city. And I kind of ended up doing Ras Beirut to the Sarai, gently going through Eshrafi, but not deep. And I never reached Burish Why do you emphasize the other angle? Why do you start in the other side?
2: For me, it's not the other side. (laughs) Uh, That's well said. Yes. That's well said. Uh, But also, uh, I picked this street and also it's a bit moving today because uh, it's the first time I talk about this book Mm. that I wrote about this street on this very street, uh, which is uh, Armenia Street, Guru and Emir Bashir until the Serai. So a straight shot. Straight shot, yes. Uh, I picked this street because uh, the whole uh, voyage or the whole travel along along this street tells, and I realized that after thinking of it, all the facets of how uh, the corrupt system has changed changed the city. And also, I realized that I have like fifteen, twelve between twelve and fifteen steps uh, or stops that each one of them, each one describes a facet of this corrupt system. I start at the, at the landfill in between Bershamud and Jdaide. Right. Uh, the, and each, sorry, before I go back to the landfill, each one of these steps is a pretext for a digression. I was told you, Jan Sinclair when he walked the M25 mm-hmm. did lots of digressions. Digressions are at the core of my practice because the text is not structured by a usual outline, first chapter, second chapter, it is structured by the streets. Yeah. So every time I digress, if I do two, three steps further, I go, it brings me back to the streets. Uh, so the first step uh, is the a, is a landfill. Uh, what,
1: a, what an introduction. So yes, it's, yeah.
2: exactly. The first step is a landfill and it, I make a chronological digression towards the waste crisis of 2015.
1: There's actually an article that, it. it, I mean, I should emphasize, all these articles are, in a way, chapters of a longer story. And I would highly recommend this little novella, October Liban, in French only. And you said you're going to translate it to English after this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So these are all snippets of, in a way, a walking tour throughout Beirut. So you, you emphasize trash first. Yeah. Okay. And the article that extends from that is From Waste to Trash. That's uh, m- March last year. Yes. Reflecting on the You Stink era and, and more.
2: More than that. More yeah. than that, yeah. From Waste to Trash, the title is Because I Start My Walk with Wastes. Yeah. And I End It With Trash at the Grand Serai. Right, right. Unapologetic. So, yeah. so let's go back
1: to the <laughs> Birj Hamoud.
2: Uh, so the the waste is is a, is a is a pretext for a chronological digression to the waste crisis of tw- 2015 that gave birth to these uh, excroissance. How do we say that in English? Like, um, well,
1: I don't know excroissance
2: growth, growth. Uh, within within the Mediterranean Sea mm. uh, and I go back to 2015 because 2015 was a very important moment where uh, the political the political class collectively failed to provide politically uh, p- uh, public services to the population uh, and the waste crisis touched everyone everyone ne- the communities, sex, neighborhoods, social classes, and it's not that it was not the case at the time, at least for electricity, where people who can afford it had 24-7 electricity yeah. for pollution, where people who cannot go to the sea because it's polluted would go to swimming pools. So the waste crisis was really a horizontal crisis. And that's why the answer of the population was the first horizontal movement that could not be recuperated by any of the political parties. And if we remember well... The, the slogan of 2019, Coloniane Cologne, was born in 2015. Yeah. And in 2015 also, uh, the first uh, groups of civil society transformed or formed political parties and ran for municipal then legislative elections. So it was, it was like a um, preparation for 2019. What happened in 2019 was 2015 in much bigger and I hope I hope, much sustainable, even if the movement did not succeed in changing the system. What I want, what I do also, is I go back a bit further, 20, 2005, uh, and I talk about Samir Asir, who was uh, also one of the first, uh, or the first person from civil society to create a political party, the democratic left at the time. Uh, And he embraced the movement of 2005, but he was very precise. And when we called it the Cedar Revolution, he said, no, it's not a revolution. It is an independent sovereign movement against a foreign occupation because a revolution would turn against its traditional uh, political class. And in 2005, we did not turn against our traditional political class. So he was very uh, forward looking by saying, no, this is good. Today we are building our independence and he said it's an independence intifada it's not a cedar revolution revolution will come later when we turn against our political clash and it did come in 2019 again even if it did not succeed it was at least a revolutionary movement by all means as somebody who writes about
1: the city and we talked about this prior to sitting down you have the tendency at least maybe the emotional tendency to not want to go too far back in time that there is an emphasis, and I think you said it already, it's post 2005, all the good and bad, mostly bad, and the urban planning that's anarchic now, it's not urban planning. I wanna ask you why. As somebody who used to walk and talk endlessly, I loved going back in time. Not as a hopeless romantic, no. Whether for nostalgia only, I think that's something worth celebrating even when it's not visible. And I think that angle is actually good today. It at least makes you love what we lost. Why do you have the tendency to not go too far back and focus really on the present?
2: It's a choice. Sometimes I do go far back. Mm. For example, when I cross uh, George Haddad Street and I reach the Cardo Maximus after yeah. St. George Church, I talk about the, thought, the, 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 the school of law that we think was there. And how it was destroyed by the, the earthquake. earthquake in 551, if I remember well, uh, AD. Uh, and how all the professors uh, uh, and the, the, of the School of Law left Lebanon at the time and went to Constantinople yeah. or, or other cities, but mainly Constantinople. And I say that, and this is to support my, my idea of subsidence, is when something is lost in Lebanon, even if or in Beirut specifically, even if we think we are okay, actually we are not okay. The school of law never, the, as a center for the whole Roman Empire, never came back to Lebanon. Although the, the, the um, devise, I don't know how we say that in English, of Lebanon is, uh, sorry? No, not currency. Slogan. <laughs> of Beirut is linked to that because it's Beirutus Nutris Legum, which means Beirut, mother of laws. So it's still here somewhere in our memory. But what we lost, we lost. And that's why I say we are not resilient, because Beirut is not even the shadow of what it could have been if we haven't gone through all these catastrophes for, 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 for a long time. But yes, sometimes to answer your question, I do go back in time uh, further.
1: You do occasionally. That's true. But the emphasis is really on the modern, the, the modern experience. And is that a deliberate choice, at least in trying to put a political idea in the mix? Because you do refer to Samir Asir, and it's regular. It's not one article only. He's he's a fixture in, in most of the writing. 2005 is also a disappointment, the way you write about it. Is that something you're trying to, in a way, figure out through writing? Because you do reflect a lot, and it's unusual, on a moment, a missed opportunity... And that seems to always, every story revolves around that moment. And I'm wondering if that's your own story in 2005.
2: Uh, yes, in 2005. Uh, well, first, I also go back to, ni- to, to uh, 1990, where when the war ends, you would have expected people to hit the street and show happiness. We did not. We were not happy in 1990. because well, the conflict ended, but the war did not end, and unconsciously we knew it, and it's still not over. Uh, but to go back to 2005 and Samira here, yes, it was a disappointment, uh, and the disappointment came uh, a bit later in 2008. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of what happens; Everybody knows, and we can research it. But with the Doha agreements. The Doha agreements transform, transformed... Uh, the, the political class into an oligarchy because in Doha they agreed to govern together. It was not a coalition government. That's not what a coalition government is. They agreed to governed together. And this was a big mistake. Maybe there was no other choice. Maybe the other choice was civil war. I don't know. But it was a big mistake because it killed separation of powers and the government became a photocopy of the parliament.
1: But with your permission, I'd like to get more personal than that. Do you have something that happened in 2005 that shapes your politics in the way you write today? And the reason I'm emphasizing that year is because and we'll get back to British Hammoud, I promise. We'll get back to this journey. My tour used to end in 2005. Okay. Because I didn't feel comfortable talking about the last 15, now 18 years. I thought it was impossible to properly acknowledge all the stuff that's happening. So I went to a comfort zone, which is really Samir Asir's last words. And I would end the tour next to his statue. That to me was the way to let it go, but you're doing in a way the mirror opposite. You're saying, no, 2005 is where my story now starts. A lot of the emphasis goes back to that moment. So can you just in a way bring back to life your experience here in 2005, were you on the streets?
2: I was abroad, uh, but I would come to, I was in Paris, but I would come to Beirut. And when I was in Beirut, I was on the streets.
1: And yes. you mentioned civil society. Did you identify yourself as that back in two thousand and five? And I still do. You still do? Yes,
2: I still do. Um, I'm. I'm. Uh, I. I. Well, civil society is a tricky term. Yeah. Uh, I think. And I. I think we. We. It's not right to call the political parties today that were born out of 2015 and 2019 as civil society. They are a political opposition, extra parliamentary political opposition, but political opposition. They are political parties. They are not civil society anymore. Civil society is made of intellectual writers, people who work, NGOs, etc. When you become a political party and you run for elections... You become opposition. Even if you're not represented at Parliament, you are the opposition. An opposition to the power in place. So, but yes, I'm not a politician. uh, And I consider myself part of civil society, yes. And civil society in Lebanon is very rich and very diverse. As much as the political, the extra parliamentary political opposition, it's very diverse also. And that's one of its strengths, but also one of its weaknesses. It's important to finish on that is that the, the the diversity of the political opposition is in its nature because it is democratic. Democracy is not in parliament. In parliament, political parties and, and people or families, et cetera, discuss on how to share the cake or how to blame the others since the collapse of 2020. Real democratic disagreement, ideological, and that's since 20, 2008, since the Doha agreement, before it was different. Real... The the, the real democratic debate does not take place in in parliament. It takes place here, in cafes, in in the new political parties that are emerging. That's where democracy is. And that's why it is normal that the, the, the extra parliamentary opposition is so diverse. And it is normal that it's a weakness, but it has to overcome this weakness by agreeing on, but now I'm talking too much politics, by agreeing on an agenda that is, let's bring our disagreement to parliament and disagree in parliament, not outside parliament. And to do that, you have to agree and and win elections.
1: There's a fork in the road here, which I like, which is you go ahead, you you go, it's almost like you see post-2005 politics and you're experiencing it up front. And we're going to get back to this now, that you're reliving, in a way, certain tragedies, whether it's in 2020 in the Port Blast, or the string of assassinations you refer to, and the fighting that takes place. But I like that you're able to go down that road aggressively. If there's an intersection, I go back in time from 2005 repeatedly. So I like that there's a, in a way, there's a fork in the road and you've gone to modern, modern affairs, I like to look back. So with that in mind, let's go now to, and I think it's your best piece, With all, you've written a lot, but I love Beirut as a River. Yes. And it's translated into English, that's not the French title, you can say it better than me in French. Beirut est un fleuve. Thank you, I would never get that right. <laughs> <laughs> Again, thanks to Google Translate, and it's such a masterful piece. I'd like to bring that story to life a bit. And with your permission, I don't know if you're comfortable doing this. I didn't ask you before. Would you mind reading a bit of it? In French? In French or English? I have the English edition as a PDF file. Do you
2: mind if I read it in French?
1: I don't mind. No. But are you comfortable reading it? Yes, yeah? I am.
2: But which part? It's a long...
1: Uh... Maybe the introduction. Okay. Okay. And if you could just read into the microphone while you're
2: reading Yes, sure. « Beyrouth est un fleuve. Ce n'est pas un île. Ce n'est pas un Congo. Il n'a ni la fougue du Rhône ni le débit de la Seine. Il ne délimite aucune frontière et ne, dé- et ne traverse aucun continent. Aucune embargation n'a jamais arpenté son lit. Aucun explorateur ne s'est jamais lancé à la recherche de ses sources. Ses crues n'inondent pas de vastes plaines. Ses alluvions ne fertilisent aucun delta. » Nourri à l'automne par les, par les nuages gonflés de pluie qui se cognent contre le mont Liban et le printemps venu par la fonte des neiges des sommets, son flux est intermittent et torrentiel. Gonflé en hiver, il se tarit en été, surtout depuis que sa source de Dachouni a été totalement déviée de son cours pour approvisionner Beyrouth en eau potable. Alors, dans la chaleur de la saison sèche, il y coule encore quelque chose. S'il y coule encore quelque chose, ce ne sont plus que les eaux usées de la capitale et les effluents industriels de Mkallis. Le fleuve de Beyrouth n'est pas une voie navigable. Il ne traverse aucun continent. Il porte le nom d'une ville qui lui tourne le dos et se déverse dans l'indifférence générale à l'est de son grand port. Et pourtant, trait d'union entre l'axe côtier nord-sud qui reliait la Syrie à la Palestine et l'axe est-ouest, est-ouest qui relie Beyrouth à Damas, puis au golfe persique, Il s'inscrit en passant par le col de Dahr el baidar dans un réseau continental majeur de transports autoritiers et fut un temps ferroviaire d'hommes, d'idées et de marchandises. Ici, depuis ce pont bossu de la rue d'Arménie, on peut voir ces eaux jaunâtres cernées de remparts de béton qui les séparent du gris des bâtiments. Vers le nord, au niveau de l'embouchure, on aperçoit les immenses grues rouges et bleues du port. Plus loin vers l'est, le lit du fleuve, presque vide en cette saison, est bordé de roseaux sauvages, de champs de fraises et de quelques orangers survivants de l'époque où l'eau y était cristalline et poissonneuse. Les habitants avaient alors posé des rochers en série pour en permettre la traversée à pied sec. Plus tard, avec la construction du pont dit « bas », Ce seront des pneus usés qui permettront aux habitants de Barshamoud de traverser le fleuve à pied pour se rendre sur l'autre rive au marché aux puces du dimanche. C'est un cours d'eau étroit, ignoré du monde qui n'impressionne personne. Et pourtant, les événements qui sont évoqués le long de son lit sont glaçants et dépassent largement les frontières du petit pays dans lequel il coule. Il borde la ville arménienne de Berch Hammoud, sa place centrale, sa rue Arax parallèle à son lit et qui évoque un autre fleuve, une autre histoire. Et les ateliers des joailliers, horlogers, maroquiniers, cordonniers et autres commerçants et épiciers industrieux descendants des survivants de la marche de la mort de Derzor en Syrie, arrivés à Beyrouth après l'effondrement de l'Empire ottoman. Le fleuve de Beyrouth n'est pas une frontière. Ce n'est qu'un modeste cours d'eau un petit courant de montagne qui s'écoule par intermittence sur une vingtaine de kilomètres. Et pourtant, en 1956, le ministère du Plan qui émet un décret pour le canaliser le désigne dans la foulée comme la limite administrative de beyrouth municipal. La rive occidentale du fleuve borde maintenant Beyrouth, Furneshbeek et Babda, tandis que sa rive orientale délimite les municipalités de Berch Hammoud, el fil et Mansourie. Puis, avec 1975... Lorsque les axes de la guerre froide s'alignent sur les conflits ancestraux de sa montagne, le fleuve devient rideau de fer, il devient mur de Berlin. Le fleuve se transforme en frontière. En janvier 1976, quelques mois après le début de la guerre du Liban, au niveau de son embouchure, dans le bidonville de la quarantaine, plus d'un millier de Palestiniens, de Kurdes et de Bédouins sont massacrés. En mars de la même année, une offensive est menée dans la montagne, entraîne des massacres de chrétiens à Abadiye, dans le Casa de Babda, puis à Mtene, à Antoura, à Terchish, dans les hauteurs sauvages où le fleuve prend sa source. Puis, en septembre, une contre-offensive conduit à des massacres de Druze, à mi-chemin, entre les sommets et la côte, dans les localités de Salima et de Arsoun. Le fleuve est une rivière, ce fleuve est une rivière de sang qui raconte le cercle vicieux des vendettas et des tueries sauvages dont la naissance de l'État moderne avait pourtant promis de tourner la page. La montagne Aujourd'hui, réconciliés et bétonnés par les routes et l'étalement urbain, grignoté par les carrières, pollués et déforestés, seules secrètes les plus escarpées et ses gorges les plus profondes sont conservées, sauf bien sûr, quand elles sont transformées en décharges sauvages de déchets.
1: Round of applause, please. I don't know what to say after that, but that's... Uh... Makes me want to study French again. Get my Becherel. (laughs) (laughs) Conjugaison. Try to figure it out. It sounds so much better when you read it out loud in French. But I recommend anyone who doesn't speak French or read French, just go to Beirut is a River, write your name there, it shows up in English. And it's... I read it three times. And I want you to walk me through how this article came about. Are you literally walking... On that bridge from British Hamut to Madam Chayet.
2: Yes, the, the the river is one of the twelve steps of of the book. Mm. And uh, in in October, Liban, I don't talk about all these political elements. They came later to my mind. Uh, the so as I told you for the waste, I did a chrono- chronological digression, and the walk bring, brought me back to the to the to the text. Yeah. The river is a pretext for a geographical digression. I, di- I go back, in my mind, to the, to the summit to the source. You know, there is this whole romantic quest of the sources of the Nile or the Amazon, etc. Well, and I, I start this text like this. This river is not an Amazon. It's not a Congo. It's not a Nile. It's just a little insignificant stream. And it's very polluted, and it's dry most of the year. But I still going to go and look for the sources, like have this romantic quest of the sources of Nahar Beirut. And what I find is, first, so many of the contemporary problems of our, our contemporary world that are exacerbated in Beirut. First, I find the urban sprawl, deforestation, uh, illegal carriers, uh, Uh, that the carriers that that are, which stones are used to cement the the, the coastline. Uh, I also find the history of massacres because I realized, although I know subconsciously that as as soon as this goes out of Beirut, the river was a divide between east and west in Lebanon, the political east and the political west. But it was also at the time uh, superposed with the Cold War. That's why I say at some point, the river becomes a prolongation of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, it, uh, it, it falls, this, this wall, this border falls in, in, in 1990, a year after the Berlin Wall, for the same reasons. So it shows also the place of Beirut in the world. And that, that's the name of my, of my colon, all the columns, the columns, the 12 columns are called Beirut in the world. Because each one is also a pretext to replace Beirut in a global context and say how Beirut is exacerbating most of our contemporary problems, whether it's environmental, climate change, uh, sleepwalking, when we walk. Uh, eyes closed towards the cliff. We are sleepwalking. The war in Ukraine is sleepwalking. Where are we going? Climate change is sleepwalking. We're not doing anything. Let's not fool ourselves. We're sleepwalking towards a catastrophe. So Beirut is, is, is at the forefront of these international problems. But on a positive note, maybe it also holds the solutions to these problems. And that's why it's important to the world, I think.
1: I've stood on that bridge my whole life. I've crossed that highway bridge and the side road my whole life. Um, I've done episodes with urban planners that like to show how it looked in the 1920s, or even earlier sometimes, Autumn Ottoman Beirut. And you're right. It's a small little stream, but it looked like it was a healthy, healthy flowing stream with vegetation and an unrecognizable landscape. Now you're right it's quite horrid to stand there and try to enjoy beirut river but there's that that angle you write with which is it's a common it's a common thread in, art, in all your articles where you're taking beirut's case and making it almost like this is a universal corruption issue why do you see beirut this way and i i'm trying to get at you in a way you're you're flattening beirut And you're making it part of the world, maybe more than it is. Yeah. So why do you do that? Is it something that you've seen in other cities where you feel that there's a repetition? Because in my mind, and actually every urban planner I've spoken to, that includes someone in the audience, Sarah Yassin. Oh, there she is. I did an episode with her. Half of it was about her leaving Beirut (laughs) Medinity. on the day she left Beirut Medinity. The other half was about urban planning. I don't sense from most urban planners of that universal message. It's more that Beirut's case is quite unique and quite uniquely problematic. You're saying the opposite. So how did you come to that conclusion?
2: Uh, I'm not the only one who thinks like this. Um, There are lots of writers, and usually writers, uh, Mm. who who think like that. Dominique Heddey wrote about that. Sharif Majdalani wrote about that. Uh, A French philosopher, Pierre Parlan, also who who spent some time in Lebanon and wrote about Lebanon, a book called Quarantina, uh, put Beirut in a global perspective like that. So it's the angle of not being an urban planner when writing. You're allowed to be more... No, I really think that Beirut has this in it that it is like the center of something uh, in the world. It's, 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 it's in a way central, and it exacerbates all the problems of the world. Hmm. Uh, Dominique, de writes that Beirut is at the forefront of our global apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is a bit of an exaggeration. It's a bit of an exaggeration, yeah. but that's what writers do. Okay. <laughs> they exaggerate. Um,
1: so it's the imagination afforded to creative nonfiction, that you can take a city like Beirut, and almost let emotions guide you there. Is that a fair way of saying it? Because it's 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 the
2: same the same process, Ronnie, that I did in Dubai, mm. to a certain extent in Paris, although I did not write about Paris, but I wrote about Dubai a lot. I the same process, the same exact process did not lead to the same conclusions. Oh, I so I think mm. and I don't think we need to define it here or I I feel that Beirut has something. Other cities have other things that are very important uh, that, may, that make them central to the to, to, to global uh, trends. And But I think Beirut has this in it. And that's also maybe why it's so attractive to, to people who come and discover it I see. while it is a city that is collapsed, that is suffering, that is destroyed, that has been destroyed and not rebuilt as we think uh, so many times. It has scars and still... There is something. There is something that attracts people uh, that is not describable, that is not definable.
1: So the familiarity and the collapse we've lived with is a shared experience that you would be comfortable saying that. I I, I can't see it that way, unfortunately. And maybe that's prejudice. How do you see it? I think I'm prejudiced. Maybe I'm too biased. Maybe I'm actually reading the room wrong entirely. I see this city's problems as severely unique. And that's maybe why it becomes more attractive to people that have never seen anything like this.
2: I think it's unique in the sense that it's very intense and very, very, mm. yeah. Mm. I don't think uh, urban, uh, like the the, 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 the the problems of... Uh, Capitalis- uh, urban uh, ca- financialized capi- uh, sorry financialized urbanism urbanism uh, are uh, 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 a local problem they exist mm-hmm. everywhere in Lebanon they they wiped out half the city more than the war uh, I don't think air pollution is a is a problem uh, that is specific to Lebanon that's fair
1: yeah I meant more in the topography and how it degenerated to a point that it's almost unlivable sometimes. I think think of that massive collapse and unique freefall of a cosmopolitan city that once shined not that long ago. I think that is very special. I can't think of any other city that has flipped on its head the way Beirut has. Look,
2: Beirut shines every now and then. Mm. Of course, there is what we call the golden era of uh, pre-Lebanese war in, in the seventies, but it, sh- it shined again in in uh, in, in the 2000s, in mm. the nineties, then in the two thousand, then in, in two thousand, and then mm. until uh, twenty eighteen. Uh, every now and then, now it seems like it's shining again in a way. It's it's, it's not, there's no one golden era. There are waves of, 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 um, of revival that are followed by waves of, of uh, destruction. I think you're a better
1: observer than I am. You see patterns in ways that I don't. And maybe that's where the musicality of the, of the writing comes from. It's almost like there's there's something that you feel in, the f- in familiarity, and it's not just Bebou. Sometimes you go to London and your writings do. I, I don't see it, and maybe that's just what makes you a better observer and better writer. I love the way you play with the first person narrative. And going from Burj Hamoud across the bridge, just into Madam Khayil, you wrote a great piece called I Am No Longer a Silo. And that came out last year. In 2022. Yes. It's a first-person narrative, and it's a challenge to do that. I think it's actually a huge challenge to be the silo and write about yourself. Um, I have two questions here. The first is, why did you use first-person narrative here? When you could have done the same exact story in third-person narrative. You could talk about the silo. You chose to be the silo. And the second question is, the unique Catastrophe, the second largest non-nuclear blast in modern history, to me is not a universal message. That is a very, very unique story. But you dare the reader to take it into a more global problem. So I want to go down that road too. But first, why the first person narrative?
2: Well, this piece in, in Lorient was published on the 4th of August for the commemoration the second commemoration of yeah. the of the blast uh, but it's part of a longer text uh, that is 10 pages long and that is part of a collective book on the big catastrophes of the 21st century so in this book here yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a text about uh, the earthquake, the earthquake and the tsunami in Fukushima. There is a, a text about the financial crisis in Greece because catastrophes are also financial. There is a text about um, um, Haiti and two texts about Beirut. And when I was asked to, asked to write this, this text about the explosion, I thought first I don't want to write about my own experience of the of the explosion. It it was, I mean, we all told our stories and they are all different yet all similar. Uh, some people are not here to tell their story, which is a very difficult thing. Um, and I also, uh, when looking at the explosion and how I, as a as a small, tiny human, lived it, I I saw it. It was so big, so inhuman in size, in scale, in impact that. Nothing would be able to to describe what happened, what happened, except something that is as huge as a silo, and that's why I decided to make the silo speak. And the silo saw things that we will never see. He saw the roses coming. He saw the blast in his in in, in his in his guts. He felt it in his guts, and he survived until now. He's like a shadow of of what it was, uh, even just after the the explosion. But it is still here to tell the story. And I think he's a great witness. And he's a witness of more than the explosion. He's a witness of a big chunk of Lebanese history. He was built in the 60s. uh, And he was eviscerated, or he almost died in 2020. Between the 60s and the 20s, of the 21st century, is, it's a very rich period where everything that we live today is already, was already written. And I, I make him say that the whole story was already written in, in, its, in, its, uh, in its structures uh, since its inception uh, in, in, in the 60s. Uh, the silo was built by a Czech company, so by a Soviet, Soviet company, it was financed by Kuwaiti money, yep. so by Western capitalist money, okay? The Western capitalist money came from the east, east of the silo, right? In Kuwait. And the, the, the construction company frame came from the global east, but from west of the silo. Right. Aren't we talking about the complexities of Lebanon already in the construction of this, of this building? So it's, it's so telling. It tells so many stories that, uh, yes, it's, I think it, and I think it has so many things to say yet uh, as 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 part of the complex texture of this country.
1: There's a section of the piece, and I'm not going to read it in English because it's a Google Translate, although... No,
2: it was translated. Oh, that is a... Yes. Uh, L'Oreal Today? Yes. Oh, great. So
1: I'm, I, it's fine to you quote. You can. Okay. <laughs> I may do that a little later then. Okay. No, because I, uh, it's good to know, Google Translate and L'Oreal Today's Hired translator are doing the same. AI is definitely
2: destroying. I will everybody. let you judge. You're you're the you're, the, you're better in English no. than me, so I will let you judge. The
1: there's a there's an emphasis on certainty of this structure up until a moment where I notice the shift happens, where you take one step back, even though you are the silo. But in my mind, you say something towards the end, which is a. Almost like the silo doesn't know exactly what happened. The silo is not sure. Yep. I would argue the opposite. And I'm saying as if I were writing, and I can't write as well as you, but if I were thinking, I am the silo. I am the silo. I'm writing about myself, Mr. Silo. I know everything that happened. I'm sure about it because I'm the silo. But you take a different road. Yes. You take a road of we can't be sure. And you know why? It sounded like a Mujtama Madani tweet.
2: No, no. Uh, first, Mujtama <laughs> who, Madani. Laughed is, uh,
1: who laughed right now? Who was the person? Who was it? Michelle. Michel, where's Michelle? Where's Michelle? Can I see it? Thank
2: you, Michelle. Thanks. <laughs> um, One yeah. person
1: appreciates that.
2: <laughs> well, there's a reason why the silo doesn't know, because I didn't want. For a, a telluric or titular, how do you say in english i don't know that for like almost a god to to know everything and and he stressed exactly who would know he said, and maybe we can find the sentence yeah, the most complex, the most but also the most fragile of human inventions will be the only uh, thing that we'll be able to know, and this complex yet fragile thing is the independence of justice. So only humans, by activating and the independence of one of their most wonderful inventions, which is independence of justice, will be or would be, if they let it work, able to know what happened on that day and, and the months before.
1: But the silo knows. You you talk about it also as saying the silo knows some of the ammunition was siphoned off. He <laughs> supposed so. Let's read that. Actually, it's nice. To, do you mind sharing that section? Sure, no, yeah? sure, please. Okay. So that, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece. Okay, actually, we can go one paragraph back. So it's two paragraphs. Beginning at I will, oh, and it goes to
2: goes to uh, justice here. But uh, I will try to stick to my fatal encounter with this Moldovan flagged vagrant cargo ship, the Roses, and especially with its ammonium nitrate cargo. Sold at auction by its bankrupt Georg- by its bankrupt Georgian manufacturer, Rustavi Azot, it was bought by a UK registered shell company, Savaro Limited which promised to sell it to the Fabrica de Explosivos Mozambique. But, with empty coffers, unable to pay for the passage through the Suez Canal, the Roses stayed at Beirut, where it was abandoned by its captain and crew, by its owner, its charterer, and even by the Mozambican sponsors of the cargo. On October 23 and 24, 2014, the Beirut port authorities, unloaded the bags of ammonium. On February, 20, uh, on February 18, 2018, the roses sank on site. I don't know if Beirut was the final destination of the cargo or if this Fabrica de Explosivos Mozambique story was only a smoke, a smoke screen. I don't know if the ammonium nitrate in warehouse number 12 was siphoned off for years because, according to some reports, If the totality of the cargo had exploded, the whole city would have been wiped out of the map. I don't know where the spark that caused the fire and the explosions came from. I don't know if the accident was intentional or if a succession of human errors and negligence led to this catastrophe. The only way to sort out the real from the fake is to make good use of the most elegant, the most complex, yet the most fragile, of all human inventions, the independence of justice.
1: I don't think he knows. It's a risk, it's a gamble because you are the silo. Allow, allow me to go down this road as much as I can. Okay. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to question the writing. The writing is excellent. It's more just thinking about how somebody can represent something so so magnificent in architecture and so tragic in our lifetime and also urban planning, politics, geopolitics, everything. It's it's what we're living through right now. It all happened there. I I don't know if justice here or that notion of uh, aspiration. I don't know if the silo would say that.
2: What would he say?
1: I would silo would say, I know. I, I think so. I think the silo
2: Maybe he knows, but he wants to give a chance to this wonderful invention that is the independence of justice. Right?
1: Both both met the same fate in our lifetime in this country. Both, whatever survived the Civil War, like the silos, restored fully after the war ended, I think only damaged in the 80s with one shell. Yes. So that monster, beast, made its way through 15 years of fighting under Uwit control, then under everyone else's control at different stages, under Syrian control, even under Hezbollah dominion, it stayed, it stayed, silo stayed. Because it was useful. Its wheat is useful. So it doesn't serve in itself a function. But if I'm that majestic uh, center point for everything, meaning trade, Infrastructure, weapons, money, ammonium nitrate, all smuggling that happens there, I would be the smartest Lebanese structure. And all the answers would be right there.
2: And it probably is. But again, the silo I see is a a Democrat. I agree (laughs) with you. He certainly knows. But he really wants... Justice to... And we go back to Samir Asir. Samir Asir was a a Democrat. He believed in independence of justice, in separation of powers. And when he was... uh, I will not go into the details then, but when when the generals were put in jail, he said, I want them to have a fair trial. I want them to have a fair trial, although they persecuted him. Uh... I I think the silo is a democrat and he wants independence of justice to be uh, to be uh, reinforced, especially in a country like Lebanon where everything can give uh, justice its independence in terms of competencies, culture, history, etc. We just talked about the school of law, uh, so I think the silo, the silo has. The long durée on his side, he doesn't care. He's, anyways. Anyway, he also says it. Maybe tomorrow I won't be here, and probably he won't be here tomorrow. Uh, he doesn't care. He just, his legacy will be the independence of justice, and that the criminals will be uh, persecuted.
1: You took on the challenge of being a silo, and it delivers in first-person narrative. Uh, I want to go from the silo though, towards. Martyrs Square in downtown. I know we're jumping over some terrain here, but the reason I'm jumping from the silos straight to Martyrs Square is because that's also a part of the city that's erased. Yes. Albeit not through that standard form of violence, more through urban planning catastrophe, and prior to that, civil war destruction. Yeah. So Martyrs Square downtown all the way to Antari and Antari Hill. Sarai, that's the green line. Your writing goes back in time there deliberately. So that is one chapter of history, one location where you bring Ottoman Beirut back to life. And that's, I think, quite important that downtown was the center point for the city. And downtown was, it's where where everyone met. And you write about it that way. So you honor the role of downtown. Can you walk with me a bit and how you do that? And I will, on the other end of that, show you how I used to do it on my side.
2: Yes, with pleasure. Uh, I'm going to use languages. Sure. When you walk from Daura to Riyadh Salah, yeah. you hear several languages. First, you, he- you hear Amarig, Tagalog. Uh, um, uh, and p- 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 domestic workers who, who speak who has Arabic as a lingua franca. So you hear a nascent Creole Arabic that is, that is being uh, born in, this, in the early neighborhood of Daura. Then you enter Burj Hamoud, and you start hearing Armenian melt with, mixed with Arabic. For the oldest um, people from Burj Hamoud, you hear also Turkish. You cross the bridge and you enter the gentrified neighborhood, gentrified neighborhoods of Jemaisi Maram and you start hearing alongside Arabic, French, and English mixing all together. Sometimes still a bit of Armenian here and there. Um, and when you cross the Josh Haddad Street, silence, zero language, no language, because nobody's there. Until the Grand, the Grand Serai. Yeah. Just and I was telling you what you hear, what you when when you eavesdrop conversation. Walk the whole street and see what you hear. All these languages, and then when you cross George Haddad street. Thank you, Stephen.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Does he come with you to every barn that you draw? Always. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. I should get myself a Stephen. You know?
2: So yes, so no more languages. I wake
1: up in the morning, there's coffee. Oh, thank you, Stephen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so just this, this without talking about architecture or urban planning or yeah. the failure of building a new city center, etc. only listening to what's happening on the street and the language that are spoken and the way they are spoken, the way they are rich and, and boiling and mixing together and creating a cultures... As soon as you cross the Josh Haddad street, no more languages. Nobody's talking because nobody lives there. Almost nobody works there. And that's for so many reasons.
1: So you're willing to say something which is unpopular in most circles today. I think when people talk about narrative and history, you're honoring something which is, I think, is good. It's the complicated identity from one street to the next. So all these languages and all these identities, they're not consistent. They, it's almost like you can go block by block and suddenly you're hearing a different different, different language altogether. Whether it's British, Hamoud, into Maram Khair, yes. into Jamezi, or if you go back in time, you hear dialects. And I think that's rich, rich Definitely. in diversity. How about the other end of that argument, which is identity is everything and national identity is lacking. I, what you describe there to me is national identity, having a, having a mixing that's uncomfortable.
2: And in the text, when I talk about all these languages, American, the, the Armenian, Turkish, yeah. Arabic, French, Arabic, etc., I end, I end my sentence by saying all these Lebanese languages, mm. they are all Lebanese. Yeah. People speak these languages in Lebanon, so it's they, and there are communities that are established and have been there. Let let alone their papers or or, or what they do or how they are living here. These are Lebanese languages. Uh, yeah, and complexity is definitely a, a wealth. And simplicity that's... is 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 the is where uh, fanatics uh, strive. Yeah, complexity
1: excludes them totally. And in my mind, the buildup would lead to something even more mixed and more diverse, which is downtown. And rather the opposite happens, like you said. Suddenly it's emptiness, no voices. So let's go down there a bit. How, how, are, you, how are you writing that? Are you literally just... Are you using all your senses in downtown to try to explain the emptiness? I, I always struggled. I, I struggled so much with trying to bring downtown back to life.
2: So how do you do it? What is your... To Alone? Yeah. I cannot. But altogether, we brought it back to life several times, several times. And the most recent time was in 2019. It was when people were criticizing the uprising, thing. it's a Kermes or what. This is what a revolution is. This is what an uprising is. You have places where people had fun, listened to music, uh, go go with babies and kids on strollers. You have places where people sold books and um, uh, dera, corn or sell coffee. You had places where people would learn things under the tents and in the egg. Uh, where people who come and teach people on what is separation of powers, what is democracy, etc. And you had a violent point that is also very needed i'm not a pacifist at Riyadh al salah where people were the most violent people were confronting the police the darak and the, the park the the, the um, haras al yeah. el- majlis yeah. so a revolution is all of this and beirut was the the city center the the, the, the whole city center war, was alive in 2019 it was it was back to what it could, would have been, and I, that I didn't know in, 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 its, in, in its, uh, in its um, alive history before, before 75. Yeah. So, so yes, uh, it's, it's, and and I think it will happen again. Again, we're talking about waves. I think it will happen again and it will go a bit further, not enough for most of us, but it will go a bit further next time.
1: Like every time it went a bit further. So I will go down that road a bit, in a bit but let's compare and you you do deliberately do this in the writing in the article you talk about the differences between 2005 and 2019 and how people showed up in downtown yes and if memory serves me right the exact uh, difference is people flocking to the city naturally versus be being bussed in i thought and we're we're of the same generation i thought that was a bit unfair to 2005. But you made that distinction clear. So is that almost a, you're letting go of 2005 by acknowledging something that in your mind is more beautiful or more more meaningful?
2: I was disappointed by 2005. Uh, and no, in 2005, I was so hopeful and so excited. And I didn't care if people were coming by buses, if these buses were financed, if this was uh, supported by half the political parties. Uh, I was totally with them and totally hopeful of them. But then I got disappointed. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a politician. I don't know what sh- they should have done. But 2008 came and they avoided civil war. Is this to put out their credit or not? The, 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 the fact is This decision brought us where we are today.
1: That's not the 2005 that I remember. See, the disappointment you have and the way you embrace it, I think has produced a lot of eloquent writing. I honor it, I own it. I still think, and this is unpopular to say today, I still think 2005 produced everything else after. I, I see a direct link. Don't as-
2: misunderstand me. 2005 mm. has great accomplishments. And as I said, 2005, 2015, 2019, and the next one, yeah. every time there are gains that will not be totally retaken by, by the negative wave that will come back or the counter-revolutionary waves, whatever we want to call them or describe them. 2005 kicked out the Syrian army from Lebanon. It was not only the people in the street, not only the politician. it was also a, a political global context that was favorable, favorable to that. Uh, but this happened. It is an important accomplishment. It also made people realize uh, it was the first time people were coming together after uh, fifteen years of civil wars and twenty, 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 fifteen years, fifteen other years of uh, glacis, like everything was frozen under under Syrian occupation. Uh, so it's a it's a very very important moment and probably without not probably certainly without 2005, 2019 would not have happened definitely. I totally agree. And I'm, um, yeah, I agree with you No, that.
1: it's it's a, it's a way, it's a narrative. I think it's, it's a way of looking back in time and the conclusions one reaches over time. I think politics died post 2005. In 2008? Prim- primarily in 2008. And the political journey that Lebanon has been on was beaten to death over time. Agree. That, yeah, that's the kind of way I look back on 2005. But versus how people show up to certain squares or not. No, I think 2005 was a massive achievement.
2: It was. I yeah. totally agree with you.
1: But maybe not for the same reasons we share. Why? I don't think civil society is the noble, the noble group in both sides of the story. I think they're doing the right thing always, for the most part. They stood on the right side of history, but I don't think everyone else was bad. That's kind of where I think there's a lot of narrative issues that happen over time. I think a lot of good people showed up and some of them, some of them did try. And that is not, I think it's more looking at, looking at non-civil society in that story and how it ended up being a perverted version of itself.
2: I also agree with you. Civil society is not monolithic and it's not uh, a good force that is always good. Civil society are its people, its organization, its NGOs with whom we can disagree, who can make mistakes, who can take wrong positions. And civil society, by the way, in 2005 was split. Yeah. Not only the political parties were split, Even even the population, yes, was split, but also civil society organizations were split. Yeah. So... Civil society is not something that is good. And civil society is the diversity of what is in the population.
1: But it was split also the way politicians were split. I agree. And civil society over time paid the same price. That's actually going back to the silos for a moment. I think there are people and structures that know what happened.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I totally agree with you.
1: So there's, I think, I don't know if maybe I'm going too far in this, but I always see a gap in that. It's looking back in time with disappointment and despair, rather than looking back and being able to focus in on something that has destroyed this country to make it an unrecognizable place. Yes, I
2: agree. Yeah, yeah, that I think... I totally agree. Mm. And that's why justice is important. And I think I know where you're going. Mm. And tell me if I'm wrong. I think that from all the, the political parties that have ruled that have participated in the civil war first, and or that have ruled uh, together or alternatively uh, for the last 40 years, they are not equally guilty of the situation we are in. I totally agree with you. Some are criminals. Some are killers. Some are um, uh, thieves. And some made poor choices. Mm. So there is guilt, there is responsibility. I don't think all are guilty. I think they are all responsible. So yes, but that's why I need an independent justice and a real trial to understand who did what, who is guilty of what, and who is responsible of what. And I think we know what we're talking about. We agree on that.
1: Yeah, it's a a delicate debate. It's not maybe.
2: It's not delicate. I think it's very clear. Mm. But we need justice to set it in stone and to show it to, to the world
1: yeah that's the one thing robbed from everyone whether they're in a political party that goes back to the 30s or a civil society activist who ends up meeting the same fate i think that's a fair way of
2: putting yeah. this all together i'm not an activist i try to think of what's happening and to describe things and yeah. to understand things and to think to give to, to, to inject thought. And yes, yes, alone, but I want justice to tell me who did what and when and who is responsible for what. Some people can go to jail, some others can pay a fine. Right?
1: So we're going to take a small break. Okay. And after the break, we'll open it up to the audience. They can ask whatever they'd like about writing, about politics, urban planning. With pleasure. So order anything you'd like. Ten minutes. Thank you,
2: Camille. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
1: So let's open it up to the audience. Any questions up front? Sari Yassin.
2: Wow, <laughs> Hi. Are
3: you nope. ready?
2: <laughs> no, never. <laughs> <laughs>
3: never. Um, well, first, it's nice to see two good friends in conversation. One thing, two things. So first, uh, representing the urbanist here, maybe with a fellow architect, I thought it so there's in when we teach to students uh meaning of space we talk about genius loci uh and i think uh for me well translation maybe Camille, you're the better linguist than i am but for me genius loci is the spirit of a place without spirit wanting to connotate anything religious uh so it's the it's the essence of a place, the layers of memory, history, uh, changes uh, that, have, uh, that this place, location, street, uh, has witnessed throughout history. Uh, and this, for me, is very present in your writing and in your uh, Walk Beirut, which I did long, a long oh, time you ago. you did? Yes. Oh, you kidding. 20, 20 2000, tw- uh, 2008, maybe.
1: Oh, my god
3: um so so a place ha- for me as a practitioner a place has a spirit and this spirit p- persists throughout political changes through uh, uh, maybe even climate change and we could go into that with Camille. the other thing is and maybe that's uh the question of void so when we speak of martyr square Again, that's, that's an exercise that I used to give to my students, uh, the idea of urban void and the relationship of urban void with uh, narration and uh, the act of protesting. So if we did not have these urban voids in downtown, could we have had 2005, 2019, 2015?
2: Uh, yes, genius loci, uh, and we had long conversations, Sarah Lili, uh, on, on that. It's definitely something that informs also writing. Um, when, uh, when, when I stop at a detail, at, a, at a mundane, mundane detail of the streets, it always brings back so many things, uh, like, like the, the river. You cross the river. Maybe someone will not see anything. I saw a border. I saw massacres, and I saw uh, deforestation. I saw climate change, uh, etc. So the genius loci also makes people behave differently because people behaved like this before them at the same place. So it's it's some there is some kind of continuity, and uh, in in the, the the squares, the martyr square, Andrea de Sulah uh during uh, the, 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 the uprising of 2019, Genius Lokai was here because uh, people were uh, behaving as as if, we, as, if, as if it was the ballad again. It was popular. It was shabby. It was happy. It was angry. It was it was everything. You have all the emotions you have in a city were there and physically there, and people were dividing the place and and using the place as if it was a city. And I would have hoped that it would have stayed like this, a pedestrian public uh, space. A, a little note also, and I remember in 2019. First, first people were spontaneously taking the squares. Then the police put uh, fences around the, the, the place. And we got angry. Why are you putting fences here? But then we got also angry when they took out the fences, because we appropriated them. And it was pedestrian, pedestrianizing, making it pedestrian, <laughs> uh, the, whole, the, whole, the whole space. Mm. Uh, so they they created this, this against their will they created a pedestrian place by putting fences around the two squares. So um, and this comes to the I I, I move to the void part. Uh, yes, it's I I don't think it's void. I think it's public space. Um, um, Scale, Yes, but when you see uh, how Arab Spring uh, took off in other cities, like Cairo with the Tahrir Square, which is a square, which is not a void, or maybe you would call it a void, I don't know. In Bahrain, with the Pearl Square, that, by the way, they destroyed after the uprising. Um, I think it's a presence of big public spaces. Uh, That that allow people to 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 to, that uh, are allowed to be appropriated by people, but I don't know if you have another perspective.
1: You would know that you're far more uh, advanced in this field than I am. I'm just a spectator. I look at it as an amateur, and you've written about it. I think in both as a creative nonfiction writer and also to a certain degree an academic. So I'll say it the way I understand. I think had Martyr's Square not been brought down in 1993-94, I think the same thing would have happened. So I don't think it's just because there are parking lots or for that matter that it's an eyesore today at how vastly expansive it is without anything there. But I think had it been crowded, jammed with or without Solitaire, I think people would have gone to the same location. I think that is the power of Martyr's Square. And maybe not everyone appreciates the in-depth history. Maybe people don't proactively think about the hanging in 1916 or independence and what it meant, but it holds some weight. Any other location in Beirut wouldn't seem right. I think that's, that's, the, that's the place that if... I don't know if I share the same sentiment you do, yeah. that the next round will be bigger I think 2019 is the biggest in history. And it, I think that's, that's, the, that's the zenith. But if there is something else that happens again, they do it'll happen in Martyrs Square.
2: Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, just to jump on, on what you said, uh, I think there was socially in Lebanon... Uh, the, the the possibility of an uprising like the October one, the October uh, twenty nineteen one. Uh, usually, urban planner in in authoritarian states love big spaces because they are able to to control the crowds. So I don't know. It's another it's another point of view. Maybe maybe despite the void, we demonstrated uh, against the violence of the state, violence in all its means. I don't know. It's it's a proposition. I don't know. For example, I know for a fact that in Dubai they build uh, big spaces, big highways and big streets even to be able to control. Uh, it's so, I don't know. It's, it's a double-edged sword, I think.
1: And I remember, I mean, going, comparing the two only in terms of how it functions. The build-up to 2005 was also part of the story. People walking from Eshafi, people walking from Ras Beirut. So it kind of made sense too. Yep. It still is the natural focal point. It's a
2: geographical center. Exactly. Even if yeah. it's not the urban center, it's right. a
1: geographical even, center. And you said it earlier, even when it's dead, yeah, it does come back to life when necessary. Genius loci. That's genius loci. Yeah. Which language is that? Greek? Latin. La- Latin. Thanks. <laughs> I should have said that in 2008. <laughs> Are there other questions? Michelle. Is it
4: working? Yeah. Yeah, well, I have two interventions. One that might not be related to the subject and the other that is directly <laughs> related to the subject. But I want to rebound on the small uh, laughter I had. Uh, yes. When you mentioned, uh, you said it's a little bit like a uh, civil society
1: statement. Uh, I think uh, I was more offensive than that. Tweet, yeah. <laughs> made in a Mishteba madani tweet.
4: Mustama Ahmedani tweet. Absolutely, yeah. that was fantastic. Thank you, Musta.
1: Do so I get a free room uh, at uh, Yeah, definitely,
4: definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, but you you put your uh, finger on a uh, on a wound that uh, I don't know. I feel that we aren't often aware of uh, the narratives that we use. The Mustama ahmedani and uh, w- like all the way. Uh, it's been carried by the media, by the people, by uh, uh, because funny enough, we consider that uh, 2019 was the soda of Musta'madani. Whether we agree that it's a Saura, whether we uh, agree that it's but I think quite often we tend to uh, put everything in this bag that is called Musta'madani. What's Musta'madani? Is it you? Is it Kami? Is it me? Is it everyone. Uh, And in a way, uh, I have the feeling that most of the media, like the traditional media that is controlled by the traditional political parties, tend to want to uh, degrade the image of whatever has been achieved uh, in the September uprising. Uh, using Mustama Madani as something we can hit on because otherwise there is no one we can hit on and in a way to to try and uh, empty uh, whatever has been acquired from uh, its meaning I don't know if I make sense in what I'm saying uh, we tend to uh, put everything on the back of Mushtama Madani so it's very important to be very careful like repeating what is Said by the media and using Mushtama Madani, because what's Mushtama Madani at the end of the day? I think I think what happened in September 2019 is way more important than the way it's presented by the traditional media saying It's it's probably you, Kami, me, and everyone present here who was asking for a. A Lebanon that, is, that has way more justice whether it's social justice whether it's uh it's uh regular justice anyway so that's let's put this behind i just needed to make uh, this clear because i feel that quite often we use narratives uh repeating them a little bit like when we we're kids repeating what our parents would say and we don't think of what we uh, what we say so uh that's on huh? No, but like we, we tend to put everything under Mushtama Madani and like yeah, you are Mujtama madani, I am Mustama Madani every single person is Mujtama Madani uh, whoever is not part of the traditional political party is Mushtama Madani in a way if you clean in front of your door, you're Mujtama Madani uh, anyway, that's said Sorry
1: uh, for this intervention. No, can, the I, other can, I, can I throw the question? What, what, what would you define? How, how would you define civil society? I don't need to define it.
5: Hmm.
4: Why do we need to uh, call it civil society even? Do we need to call something civil society? Or have we been induced into doing that?
1: I think of it simpler as in if you're not, if you're not in power... Your de facto,
4: yeah. Anyone who's not in power or yeah. who's part of the traditional political parties who have been part of the ruling in the past thirty years is Musta'madani in a way. Mm. Uh, whoever was a victim of uh, the war between seventy-five and ninety was Musta'madani. So it's an empty, it's an empty term for me. Mm. Everyone is Mushta Ma'amadane.
1: Maybe that's why you enjoyed the joke.
4: <laughs> no, no, but what, what you said definitely made sense and made me laugh because I agree with yeah, you the way yeah, you said it. Yeah. Now, going back to uh, one thing about public spaces and especially the Beirut River and uh, Marte Square, it's uh, very interesting because we have two elements of the capital uh, and I'm very proud and happy to be sharing this with uh, someone who's a fantastic thinker of the city uh, uh, here in presence of all of you like we have one element which is the Beirut River and the other element which is Marte Square Beirut River which is uh, a uh, small river uh, that is not really a public space maybe it could be a public space in a way, like rivers are in other big cities, like maybe the Danube is, or the, 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 de Seine is, or uh, whatever place is, but we don't have this in Lebanon. Maybe it could evolve into this. And on the other hand, you have Marte Square, which was recognized as one of the major uh, public spaces in Beirut, and where people have gathered when, They wanted the independence in 1916 and it became Martyr Square. In 2005, in every event at New Year's Eve when uh, we had some uh, sort of freedom and we wanted to celebrate, and uh, in 2019. Uh, And these places that, uh, or at least Martyr Square that is supposed to be a place, a public space uniting people, is actually a place dividing people when you see how it's emptied of its uh, of its content because you don't have a space, because you don't have a place to hang out, because you don't have benches, because you don't have urban uh, uh, furniture Uh, so this place that is supposed to unite people is becoming an element of the division, exactly the same way as Beirut River in a way was has become an element of division, whether with the highway that goes along it or the way it's walled. And if you think of it in a very pervert way, when when the Armenian refugees came and they were settled in Berhamood, nobody wanted to stay in Berhamood in the first place because it was it, it was damp areas and it was uh, it had plenty of mosquitoes. And anyway, to make it a bit more clean, I guess, I don't know, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the river has been walled, but in a way it became an an element of division between different components of the city again. And yeah, so my bottom line is that whatever uh, element is being used as division between the people in order to keep this divide between the people, rather than unite the people. I don't know if you can catch anything to rebound on on everything I said.
2: No, I just I, I I'm not sure. You, you, you are you saying that it's intentional? I don't think it's intentional. It's lack of uh, it's lack of planning. Um,
4: uh, just take a, uh, one thing. Do you think that after all the money that's been invested in Solidaire and doing small squares and stuff, like, do you think that they didn't consider at some point doing a barber square on Marte Square and like organizing it, putting some urban furniture? Like, I, I, I don't economic. have an. Can you uh, I
1: mean, I, I, this is what I re- recall. I did two episodes with Samir Khalaf the sociologist from aub he must be 90 now he's he's later in life he was involved in the early years with that uh interchange with solider and i think 93 94 he showed me the idea for martyrs square the initial idea which is a fundamentally different Martyrs square and in that square there's public space i think there was an amphitheater that was going to be installed too so there is something that's meant to be public once more. I can... Solider, yeah. so I... I Lala, that's... It, no, it's there, but it's the... Uh, if, if you remember the... Was it the first two years or first three years they would do these uh, community engagement discussions? The, this is going back, it's 30 years ago now. The idea for Martyrs Square by Solidaire, not by uh, the 1983 idea, which was more the Nahas back then, is, uh, yeah, there's supposed to be public utility. It's not supposed to look the way it does. That's clear.
2: Just to finish on this topic, it's not rocket science to, to make public spaces. It's really not complicated. It's, it's either incompetence, lack of interest... I don't think it's a political will not to create public spaces. Maybe I'm mistaken. I don't have insight or intel. Uh, but um, I think it's...
1: Uh, and the other spaces that were meant to be public were never opened. So you have all these parks in downtown that are closed. The Garden of Forgiveness never finished. That should be a, one of the nicest yeah. public parks in and the country. And even
2: we're talking about across the street here, the little yeah. piazza that is being built uh, on, on, uh, yeah. on this very street... Uh, has been blocked for political reasons why it's an amazing pilot yeah. uh, project for all of Beirut. But maybe, Sara, would you know the the reclamation, the waterfront,
1: there's a giant section of that that's meant to be a park too. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a... So all these public places were not finished. But w- like any guess? why... I think this goes back to the whole narrative of our discussion, which is, is, no, no, I think the answer is in the, it's kind of in the shadow of the discussion. I see everything that destroyed Lebanon, taking that with it. I don't think of it as able to survive with this massive problem left unchecked. So throwing it back in time, I can't imagine the better of urban planners winning when Syrian occupation was the story. It may not be direct result. It's
2: also economic interest.
1: That's for, true for
2: real estate developers. That is true. That uh, is not compatible with uh, with quality of life and uh, and say, human scale. I'll city. say it the
1: other way: renegade, cutthroat, shortcut, neoliberal—whatever you want to call it. This rampant corruption, yeah. sometimes referred to as capitalism too, Lebanese version. Yeah, uh, is harder to monitor. When you have that paralyzing story from above true i think that is what kills all good ideas in this country so, uh, so were there other questions
0: yeah. time for me to weigh in all right so um just kind of quick commentary and i hate to disappoint you on this one but 2005 yes i do believe it was a disappointment from day one um but Moving on we're talking Find about another public...
1: audio expert
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. you're the best <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, the thing about public spaces is like I, I look at it in terms of our beaches, right, all the places that can join us, where we can just come together in different parts of uh, Beirut, yeah. Yani. And, and be together have vanished all these resorts these illegal resorts that are propped up in Beirut there's only Remit al Baida which is a sewage drain uh, we don't have public transportation which is also something I think I feel is very important to bring people together so um, the whole I, I really do feel that the, the whole um, no, we, that, that, the fact that we don't have any public spaces is just bad planning to begin with. Lack but of. All f- really bad planning, uh, but also because our leaders want to make a profit, the politicians. So they're not really thinking straight in any form or shape. But uh, what can we do to change that? To well. Uh, us as civil society.
2: I think I agree with you.
0: Yeah, sorry. I just want to add one little thing, because there's also that, why I wanted to ask that question is because there's also this mentality that we have in neighborhoods where we try to create an initiative, and the neighbors want to shut it down because they don't want people from other areas coming in.
2: Uh, I'm going to answer to the first part of your question uh, in terms of what can we do. Uh, I think you said there's bad planning I think there's no planning at all uh, you talked about economic uh, you you talked about the the economic interest economic interest prevails on everything else and the, the economic uh, interest of a, of a few um uh, groups and their and the companies that revolve around them uh, unfortunately uh, the only thing my my only answer is to uh, change the political personnel, it's the only way. Uh, it's not. Uh, we we tried so many times. We we, we gave them a chance. Uh, we hoped uh, they're gonna. They're not gonna change. They have vested interests. They want to uh, economic vested interest, political vested interest. They have international connections. Uh, they they will not change uh, benevolently by themselves. How can we change the political personnel? Well, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Uh elections is one, violence is the other. Um, um, I don't know. I I don't have an answer.
1: Uh Stephen. Oh sorry, uh, uh, maybe she wanted first. Is your question related to this topic? Okay.
5: So just on that On that question, and linked a bit to your slightly different perspectives on 2005 as to whether it was a complete disappointment or had some potential that ultimately became disappointing. You talk about changing the political personnel. I think there's a choice between saying political parties is one thing, civil society is another thing, and hope comes from civil society versus saying, is there any hope in any of the existing parties which have a structure, which have a uh, which have roots, which have a, a legacy. Yes, people's dads and granddads did some quite unpleasant things you know, a long time ago, but rather than setting up new structures and having to do campaigning and all the infighting and in the, the discussion, and I, I just don't know, to, to your point about how you change this, you can look at all kinds of examples around the world where political parties have completely changed what they stood for. Um, and so whether, is, is that a fruitful avenue or is that a complete dead end? And, and it's, it's more building over time.
1: You want to go first? and then go, on, go ahead. I'll, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate the question. <laughs> lovely, lovely man. <laughs> thank, thank you. Where's my drink?
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I appreciate the question. I think it's the right question. And I think you lose friends when you answer accordingly. I remain on the margins. I fully subscribe to your view. I wholeheartedly believe in the premise. So it's the right question, but you don't, you don't get a big audience. I don't think, and I'll echo what you said, Michel, I don't think civil society is special or noble. They may say the right things often. For the most part, maybe they stand tall in the messaging and the desire. But I think the story of reform does happen through Lebanese political parties. It doesn't happen through activists only. And I think the real reform that should have happened among all these political parties won't happen as long as we're living in this absolute paralysis. But the direction of the question is correct. Where are you from? I was trying to get from the accent, from the UK. So I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, uh, there was somebody talking about Northern Ireland. And it was an odd comparison because we never think about Northern Ireland here. Very different geography, different history, but there's something in common, which is sectarianism and political violence. I asked this question and I got the answer I was hoping for, which is every political party in Northern Ireland is an old political party or a disarmed militia that reformed. And one of the biggest champions of noble causes is Sinn Féin, which is the IRA. I think that's reform. Hezbollah could end up like that. I don't think Hezbollah is going to disappear because of civil society or because of the Lebanese forces or anyone else. Hezbollah needs to reform, and so do every other party. And some have tried in different ways. Some have succeeded in certain avenues. Maybe the majority have failed, but I don't know if they fail always because of personnel. I don't think if you simply replace the people, you'll get a better result. I don't know if that's the case. But the institutions that survive, yeah, they need to be reformed. And the ones that you don't want around today for violence, they should be non-violent in the future. But that's also the story of reform.
2: No, I agree with you. It's not black or white. Uh, and i think uh i uh, i mean'm I'm, I'm not like I, at first i'm not an activist and i don't like the word activist uh and i don't also like the word civil society i i, I it exists there is something that is called civil society but again it's not a monolithic group that uh, that behaves in a certain way it's it's People, it's diverse, it's uh, it disagrees, etc. So civil society is not a thing that we can say civil society does that or thinks that or should do that or should not do that. Uh, now uh, the, the the transformation of existing political parties, yes, they they of course this can and must happen. They're not going to disappear from from one day to the other. Uh, but also the emergence of new actors is very important. Definitely. The emergence of new actors, new voices entering parliament and, and growing slowly. It takes time. It's a long process. This must happen. It's a need. And, right. and right. finally, just you talked about institutions. Mm. Institutions also needs to be reformed. Yeah. Unfortunately, today, the institutions as they are serves the purpose of the current political class. So the political class have no intensive in, incentive in transforming or reforming the institutions.
1: I'll I'll sort of add to the question by asking you a question, and I can remove this from the episode if it's problematic. No. Uh, Some of the new MPs are, I think, mutual friends of ours. We know them. We know them from academic circles, and we know them from civil society. We know them from 2018. Some of them we know from You Stink. Some we just met yesterday. But we know them. Yeah. Would you put their failure on them or on the paralysis that paralyzes everyone including the political parties
2: you assume i think they have failed oh i think i don't i think there are 12 parliamentarians in in a, in a very powerful parliament of 128 MPs. I think the system is very strong and established. I think they're doing their best. I think sometimes they disagree. I think they might make poor choices, but uh, have failed. No, I think it's a great success given the electoral law. The resources the traditional parties still have, whether financial, political, symbolic, communitarian, international. It's, It's an accomplishment for me to have... 12 or 13, but now 12 uh, MPs in Parliament, Uh, and uh, I don't think they have failed. I think they have succeeded in entering Parliament. Uh, I don't think we can expect from 12 men and women to topple the whole system from their parliamentary seats. Uh, especially let, the, let me say it differently. I, I, they, uh, they, they, I, I don't. I don't think they've No, no, no. I'll, you, they might. They might make poor choices, poor political choices. They might disagree together when they should agree because it's a priority. But they okay. have not failed. What? What Sorry. were you expecting from them to 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 vote for a new president no, or no, no. to uh, to elect? I don't know to to reform all the institution from their twelve little seats in parliament.
1: No, no. I'll, I'll narrow it down better. You're right. I shouldn't. That's. Maybe failure is not the right word for something that's still ongoing. More that we know that, for example, we talked about the silos. Yes. I I think it's okay to suggest, maybe it's not, you tell me, that the 12 MPs and Tare Bitar have nothing to do with each other. So Tare Bitar doesn't go back to his work. Not because the 12 MPs want him to. Or don't want him to. I think that's what I was trying to get at. So that they're shackled the same way any MP is shackled from any political party. We'll go all the way. I mean, it could be the more problematic figures to the more likable. doesn't matter. It could be, kataib, it could be whatever you want. Go to any, any party that claims to be reform-minded. I think they find themselves in the same situation. So is that... That is, I think, the backbone of the question, which is they're not better because they're new or that they're new faces or new names. They're, they're having the same exact
2: issue. I don't think they're having the same exact issue at all. I think, yes, Paula, if you want to... But uh, no, 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 I disagree. They don't have the same behavior. They don't have the same resources. They don't have the same history. They, we can disagree with them. We can say you're making mistakes here and there. But they are not at all the same. At all. They don't have Sorry, the same...
1: Not the same background. I didn't mean that. More like when they become... When they transition from civil society...
2: They to- transitioned from civil society to politics way before they entered parliament like all the political parties that transitioned from civil society to uh, to to political political action like Samir Asir did when, from journalist, he became the founder of the democratic left, like the people of Beirut Medinati, when they created Beirut Medinati and ran for, 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 for election in 2018, I remember, municipal elections. 16, I think. 16. 16 yeah. uh, they, they are, once, once you engage yourself in, in, in political action and you create parties or you join political parties, you're not civil society anymore. They are not civil society for me uh somebody want, did you want well, to I wanted to say something
6: yeah i wanted to say that we cannot judge as of now whether they have failed or not mm. we will be able to do this in four years time and i think if they learn from its process they need to learn from what they're doing mm. and then you'll be able to evaluate their uh, actions but also they've also they're also achieving things which are useful to the society as a whole which is uh, b- being our ears and eyes inside the parliament and a lot goes on in uh, the committees with, which are mm. usually not public yeah. and they're able if you've noticed uh, since 2019 a uh, lot of things cannot just. You know, the politicians are no longer able to pass things through. They, uh, mm. A lot is known, and and people react, and even in the media, and so it's you cannot expect things to change overnight. So I think. Instead of having, I, 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 I don't know what's the perspective. Why are you saying they have failed?
1: No, not, uh, maybe I'll backtrack the word failed because it, you're right. It's two, less than two years since they. It, not only no, it's less than two years, but uh, also it's they're only twice. the
6: expectation.
1: No, no, you're right. I'll, I'll change that word. I meant their successes do not happen because of the same issues that prevent anyone in a position of power. I think that's what I was trying to get at. All the things that they were voted in on, all the things we voted them for have not materialized. But I don't blame them.
2: But they're only 12 and they're not in government. But, but they're
1: only in parliament. No, um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it right. I don't blame them or anyone else who's trying to do the same thing. And it doesn't happen. I don't think it's their fault. That's what I meant by failure. Not that they are failing
2: But what, was, what, what were their objectives?
1: Uh, I mean, uh, can I give you a personal story? Yes. Uh, uh, two MPs we know. I would go with them. Maybe they don't want me to share this. Maybe I'll edit this from the episode. They asked me to join them several times uh, at the silos when they were burning. Najat and Milhem. So we would go on these weird night rides. I'm with them and their bodyguard. And we're driving in the port near the silo for getting very close they were on fire this is before the first this is around the first year anniversary if i'm not mistaken so it's a while but second year sorry it was last last summer yeah last summer right so that 2022 thank you yeah so they're already mps they're already in power and they're not in power yeah 2022
2: as mps they are not in power they were elected, 20- but it's not power. Power is with the government. Sorry. It's important. It's Sorry. important.
1: They don't have power. I agree. No, no. I, I think we're saying the same thing. It's just not. Oh.
2: But it's important because if you say they failed while they were in power, they were not. They are not in power. I backtrack
1: the word "fail," not fail. And
2: power. <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
1: No, they're in government. No, they're in parliament. They're, they're in parliament. They're in they're, they're in parliament. Yes, they have parliamentary authority. That's all I mean by power. I don't think Najat or Milham have any power. Exactly. Yeah, but I'm not talking about... Sorry? Wallah, your crowd is tough. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: oh, that's the crowd you brought with you? <laughs> now we know you're not making it to Bob <laughs> No, I meant I meant power... <laughs> I meant power in the way that the word is often interpreted, not the interpretation. <laughs> I meant it as in <laughs> they were elect- They're elected Yeah, they, we didn't elect them to join a club Or an NGO, they're in parliament To play, yeah, that's all I meant by power <laughs> They're standing there, and they're making phone calls To who knows who About the fire Happening And it's meters away Najat even suggesting that it's going to fall This is before they collapse yeah. On the second year anniversary maybe within weeks i don't remember exactly when and they're calling and they're trying to do something about something i think we all know is not going to change the fire will keep raging the silos the northern end will will collapse collapse, that's all i meant is that i don't blame them for not being able to do more i think that's where i was trying to go in that a good person from a new crowd can do the same as somebody from an old political party with the same intention. And they end up at the same crossroads. I think that's what I was trying to get at, which is the story of reform within political parties. I think it's as essential as new MPs entering. That's really what I was trying to get at. That's what I meant.
3: Sorry. Can I say one thing about this idea of reform and going back to the killon, in my humble reading throughout what happened in the last five years. And, and again, about the we, we or the Lebanese people, I don't like the society, what's the civil, what's a non-civil society? Is there a society that's not civil? Is it the military? So I have, I find this, this term very problematic. But going back to reform and the I think now that the Lebanese people, whoever the Lebanese people are, needed this phase of which is the catharsis of the civil war. Okay, We're fed up of all of that, and we need something new. That being said, I think this is sometimes misinterpreted by it's a generational reading. Uh, and it's also whatever remains from March 8th and March 14th, whatever, like the ramifications of that. So I think some people failed to grasp that the meant that we can say, and I'm, you don't have to edit that, and this is number one. Number two, I think, to, Steve was, to Stephen's question about reform, I think we need a phase of to get to reform, reform of existing political parties. For the political parties to understand that if, the, if they want to endure and continue or come back, like a, a, I'm thinking of a specific party that did not run for elections in Beirut, I'm thinking of uh, uh, the future movement. If a party like that wants to return, they will need to change their whole discourse and their whole narrative and other parties to persist will need to change. Any one of us today living in a modern 2023 will not. I, no, I don't know anyone who will join a party who is defined by a sect and who is not defined by economics, by uh, outlook on society, by I mean, what is a political party to the, exactly a program, a project so and and to to the question about failure of these MPs, I may, I think many of us have felt disappointment, but I think for the first time, we can say that some of our desires are at least have, have, have echo or have a channel to to continue. now what can, what can they do? And if you ask them, many of them or or many of us, would you choose a killer? or a thief, I think the answer is, is, is very clear. And we need, we, when I say we, everyone aspiring for change or working through these different uh, new nation parties will need to uh, 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 be very clear with the discourse. And we need to recognize that there is one group that is killing repetitively. And there's this big problem of impunity, which goes back to the silos.
1: so if the gentleman that's filming in the back don't put it all it's gonna go on the podcast eventually so please don't yeah thanks though yeah but you got the nice moment <laughs> hey go get that phone <laughs> who is filming i don't know some nice guy in the back uh guys we have time for maybe one more question because we've overstayed our uh, our allotted time is there any more questions uh, okay, so maybe Adnan first and then Tari. Uh We can... Uh, Let's, let, yes. Okay. Okay.
7: Go ahead, Todd. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I mean, Camille, at some point, I mean, what you read was mostly about corruption, right? Um, and then, um, uh, Roni, you talk about um, um, I mean, mostly the system, right? I mean, at the end, I mean, now, I mean, the... Um, I mean, that the system itself is like too powerful and uh, they failed in a sense that they were not able to change because the system itself, and like you, you equate them somehow with the, with the other MPs as well in saying that there, there is the system that is problematic. And like, I mean, the same. I and mean, when you talk about corruption, it's as if there's nothing you can do about that. And there is if the corruption is not caused by someone, as if it's like a fact of nature, right? Um, And then, I mean, what you just said at the end, eventually it boils down to being um, the fault of a single party, right? Uh, um, I mean, which is also, I mean, what, what Sarah was referring to at the end, not to defend anybody, but just like, my question is, I mean, does it really boil down to that single issue that we have, or is the problem caused by... By, by, by others as well and um, is it really a systematic uh, thing or is it are we part of I mean are, I mean, who's really responsible for that corruption and is it really beyond repair and if you need to change persons or do you actually need to change like a single person and then the other would, would automa- I mean that's a bit simplistic but anyways um, simplifying my question just to get a straightforward answer thank you
2: I Come don't in. think you, there's, you go. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's a straightforward answer and um, yes, to go back to what Sarah Lili was saying and what we said earlier uh, there is a difference between guilt and responsibility uh, and there's a scale and the only way to know or to establish because we sense we probably know to establish for real is a trial of all these people that have been ruling Lebanon for the last 40 years. Uh, I don't know local justice if it's independent, an international tribunal uh, who is responsible for uh, everything that happened, from the assassinations to corruption to the financial collapse to the explosion etc etc they 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 are all here in power some are more responsible than others some are guilty and other are just responsible some have made poor political choices but the there's no we need something that is set in stone and that is established by, uh, by, uh, by an independent judiciary, whether local or international. I'm not very optimistic about local justice, given the pressure that are exerted on judges and the collusion between politics and and all all the resources current politicians, whether they are guilty or just responsible, have to hinder the the judicial process. I'd rather have an international court judging all the crimes. And in crimes, I include theft poor political choices, and killing, to understand what happened during the last 40 years. It's a dream. Maybe it will never happen, but... Uh...
1: I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer my side very quickly, because there's still one question, I think. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to frame it, and it's parallel to what Camille is saying. It's not contradicting. It's clear that not every crime that happens in Lebanon goes back to that group. You can throw trash, you can do illegal construction, you can prevent sidewalks, you can even kill someone, and it's not Hezbollah's direct fault. There's a lot of things that happen in this country that have nothing to do with them directly. But I think, this is the last five years of podcasting, having done nearly 500 episodes, and talking to a wide range of people, I think it's okay to suggest one thing. There's a breakdown of a society that is happening slowly because of a paralyzing problem. And that paralysis is best represented by Hezbollah's foot in to the Lebanese government. And it denies certain functioning. It doesn't prevent everything, but it prevents essential things from happening. It's not just Hezbollah, but it's mostly that group. And if you stretch it out in time to what Camille writes about, it's what they inherited. It's not something they created. They inherited everything you write about. They inherited 2005. They inherited everything we tried to get rid of which is the way Syria mismanaged this country. It's now theirs. And that's why we talk about them today the way we talk about the Syrians in Lebanon 18 years ago. We blamed them aggressively. We're beginning to to blame Hezbollah more. And that crippling paralysis which has defined our lives. The Syrians entered Lebanon in 1976. They occupied the country in 1989. That's your life, I think entirely, and mine. We don't know what Lebanon should look like. And this is where I think the ideological battle happens a lot on social media and it trickles down to cafes. It hits families hard sometimes. It's sometimes generational. Whether or not what Sada said is true, the suggestion may be noble, but it may be moving completely away from reality in that maybe the overwhelming majority of Lebanese do not identify with secularism. Maybe the bulk of Lebanese politics is sectarian. And maybe the system is designed that way to keep these communities together. It's not functioning the way it should, but maybe it's meant to function differently. And that's the Lebanon none of us are old enough to remember. I would love to know what it was like to talk about the system in the 1960s or sectarianism in the 1950s. People discussed it, but not the same way. And I think that's where the story ends, is how does Lebanon survive a system that's completely paralyzed? The, the most uncomfortable episodes I've had are with academics that advocate for partition. Oof. And they're academic. They're not street fighters. They're not uh, activists per se. They're academia. Ph.D. scholars that advocate for a type of divorce kills lebanon for good that to me i think whether you want it to happen or not whether you're pushing for it or not that may be the the final consequence of what paralysis does which is it kills the idea of what lebanon was supposed to be
2: i think that could be the end of lebanon anyway practically it's not implementable many things that surprised
1: lebanese in the 1970s happened and people stuck around and now we don't have the option i'm thankful in a way we don't have the option of civil war there's no civil war on the horizon that's thanks to hezbollah's security dominion with the lebanese army by its side you will never have a direct security threat to hezbollah if one appears it will not be local it may be the syrians in lebanon later but that's not going to happen right now so you have no civil war option instead you go to the worst, insti- worst instincts of communities that don't feel like power sharing is working and that's opting out i think that narrative is no longer on the margins it's become mainstream and i hope that's not the end of the story but that goes back to what systems mean you can't read you can't create You can't create nations in uh, one generation, Well, you can't create countries in a century. It takes time. And Lebanon's system is so damn old, and it'll be with us until we die. I will say something. Uh, I've done I've done a lot of episodes that touch on urban planning and politics. Um, It's a rare occasion where I can actually talk to a lyricist, too, about urban planning and politics. Um, I want to emphasize, anyone that hasn't read Camille Amun's pieces, check them out. If you read in French, check them out in French. If you're like me and you don't, translate them to English. Lorient today does translate some of them. Um, It's good to have this healthy hindsight, and it's good to acknowledge the difficulties of the present, and I'm glad you recalibrated me tonight a bit. I hope I also offered my own lens on 2005, You did, and I think it's the it's the healthy debate that's underway about like minded people that want a normal country.
2: Exactly.
1: That's, I think, a goal that we all need to achieve in our lifetime. Otherwise, I really think the project that is Greater Lebanon will fade and may, maybe we'll live long enough to see its demise, which would be a terrible way to ride into the sunset. So as long as all of us are talking sensible language in face of right-wing lunatics on both ends of the spectrum, or political violent enthusiasts who shouldn't be in Lebanon's story right now, yet they dominate the discourse, Hezbollah has no legitimacy whatsoever to remain a militia, yet they are the strongest paramilitary force on the planet. Doesn't add up. As long as there's people addressing this day in, day out, at least the narrative, the narrative is intact. And if we lose that narrative, we're not honoring Samir Asir anymore and we're not honoring civil society either. So I think you do both eloquently. You're the record right now. Three hour (laughs) podcast.
2: Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you very much for having me. audience too.
1: Thanks to editing, it'll be edited down. Great. And I'll say something. You have you bring a unique audience. <laughs> Steven, I love you. You guys should come more often. <laughs> <laughs> and Sada, of course, one of my one of my most enjoyable episodes, a night that you could have just gone home and shut off social media. You spoke to me about something that your your life was changing that evening. And it's always nice to see you, Michelle, in the audience. In any audience. <laughs> Thanks for that. So next week, if you have time, I'm doing an episode with Rawi Hajj. Ravi Hajj is the author of De Niro's Game. Uh, Here. Right, right there. Right there.
2: Yeah. He, he came last week. So he was it's an hon- really an honor to precede Rawi.
1: Because Keep I warm. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a recent book, Stray Dogs, as well. Yes. But we'll be talking about his relationship to Beirut he's never talked about. His childhood growing up. And experiencing the war. He's True. never talked about it publicly. He, he's willing to do True. that in a week. So make it if you can. Camille Amun on Instagram and Twitter, and I think Facebook too. Yes. It's the Beirut Banyan on social media. Thanks to everyone. Thank you, Ronnie.
2: Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Camille. Thank you for coming.
1: Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shattar, and this is the Beirut Banyan.